0: Hello and welcome back to the Energy Flux podcast. I'm your host, Seb Kennedy, founding editor of the Energy Flux newsletter, which you can subscribe to over at www.energyflux.news. It's my great pleasure to be joined this week by Laura Sandis, an ex-member of parliament and the CEO of Consultancy Challenging Ideas. Uh, Laura has an extensive CV in energy matters she chairs the UK government's energy digitalization task force and the energy system data task force within the UK government's energy systems catapult initiative and Laura is also non executive director at gas distribution network operator SGN she's also an advocate of demand reduction policies to deliver a low carbon economy Laura welcome to the show.
1: Seb, it's a great pleasure to be here with you and Energy Flux. So thank
0: you. Brilliant. Well, Laura, um, you have done lots of work in energy, but um, the reason I brought you onto the show this week was to talk about a report that actually came out uh, a couple of years ago, um, and uh, that report is the uh, the Recasting Energy uh, Report, which advocates for structural reforms of energy markets to enable. <laughs> cost-effective pathways to achieving net zero emissions. Um, And uh, some people might be thinking, well, you know, how can this report be relevant today? Because it was written almost pre-pandemic. It was certainly pre-war and pre-energy crisis. We had low and falling wholesale commodity prices. We had low interest rates, low inflation, and everything's been turned on its head since then. We've got this war in Ukraine, which is exacerbating an energy crisis that's been brewing since the global economy opened up and, uh, and everything that happened since then that's tightened energy markets um, across UK, Europe and the whole world. Um, but but this, this sequence of events that has really squeezed energy consumers, that's kind of cast fresh light onto the issue of the structural weaknesses in our energy markets, um, both in the UK and in other liberalised economies. Um, so I, I I'm thinking that there's still a great deal of relevance to be to be talking about structural reform and market reform at this time. Um, uh, so perhaps you can talk us through that report recosting energy, yeah. um, the main thrust of it and uh, and what makes it so important today?
1: Well, in some ways seb I mean um, you know being very very conscious of um, all the dreadful things that are going on from Ukraine to the cost of living in In many ways, um, maybe recosting energy as a document is is more relevant, and that has become more relevant because of the in many ways the divergence between um what renewables cost and what fossil fuels cost. But I think that fundamentally what we 're talking about what we 've been trying to do over the past sort of ten fifteen years is to squeeze the renewable sector, which is a very different asset class to a fossil fuel commodity-based asset. We've been trying to force the renewables to perform as if they were um, fossil fuels. And it's in many ways a very, very different asset class, as I said. So renewables is very capital intensive with potentially um, very low marginal cost of the actual um, commodity, and if you look back at other markets, so for example, data. Um, in 1990, a terabyte of data was a million dollars, and today it's five cents. Now, I'm not pretending that um, electrons. This is mainly the electricity sector that electrons are going to get um, a drop that uh, to 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 that level, but fundamentally, we are talking about marginal cost um commodity from renewables. Whereas on the other hand, fossil fuels are much more a sort of commodity cost and a commodity play rather than a capital play. So if you're trying to ask both these different asset classes with their different cost bases to behave as if they were the same, you're going to end up with a distortion. So we're very keen to look at um two key elements. One is How do we unlock that capital? And capital in a renewables world world will not just sit in the North Sea, but it will sit on my roof, in my driveway, um, heating my home and the fossil fuel sector. The other key point about our uh, recosting energy programme was really around the uh, a new equality. And it's the equality between demand and supply. Um, as we go, f- f- firstly, actually, the physics tells us that demand and supply are equal. But in addition to that, um, we've got the real need. So wind and solar, they don't take price signals. They don't follow legislation. So when we're looking at balancing the system, Um, As we get more and more renewables on board, demand will be where balancing happens. And we've got to ensure that we unlock that demand and we unlock the value of that demand to enable those assets to benefit um, from, in many ways, the balancing of the system. So those are sort of the two key components. The cost base is different and structure between supply and demand is
0: much more equal going forward. Okay. Um, well, we've seen developments happening on the demand side. There, there is now participation or limited participation in, I think, the UK capacity market for some demand side response technologies. Um, is is that is that anywhere near enough? And are there obstacles to to demand side technologies participating in in balancing services and in the capacity market?
1: Well, it is very, very recent that demand side um, assets have been really uh, unlocked. And um, I mean, they've been unlocked in a very, very small way. And that's nothing to say that the markets aren't trying to do this. But still demand is a sort of Cinderella in the sector. And if we looked at the energy security paper, all of this was, you know, uh, my nuclear power station might be bigger than yours or I've got more offshore wind rather than <clears throat> saying, how are we going to balance the system and how are we going to unlock those demand actions? So I think ideas are shifting, but they're shifting slowly. The markets are very, still very designed around big assets. We're not really embracing in some ways um, <clears throat> the aggregators and allowing them to participate in a sort of cost effective and um, sort of streamlined way. So, I, I mean, I feel very strongly that I, I know the ESO is doing a lot of work on, on trying to unlock this, but we're still in a large, um, big asset based system. But in addition, we haven't got as many um, companies that are actually aggregating the smaller demand side actions. I mean, I think I will call out one or two, but, you know, so with Octopus's um, agile tariff, the Omi charger, for example, is um, really ensuring participation for EV cars. There are some um, optimizers of, of heat pumps. But this is still at very low scale. So we've really got to ramp that up, both from a retail market reform and from the structural market reform.
0: OK, so the, these are structural barriers to participation that you're, you're describing here. So we need a regulatory response. Is, is that right?
1: Yes, we need a, a regulatory response. And certainly in recasting energy, we said that um, all sort of regulatory frameworks should start with flexibility first um rather than generation first or um sort of uh, reinforcement first so we need to have in many ways change the merit order we need to um streamline as i say and make it easy to participate um we also need to understand that these are assets that are sitting i mean whether it be every consumer being involved in the system, I think that's a a big ask. But we really should start engaging a lot more with what I would call commercial um, sector um, companies and industrial companies to ensure that they understand the benefits of their demand and that it has a value. One of the big barriers, of course, is that um, the whole system value does not flow through to demand. It's just the commo- commodity arbitrage that uh, that benefits consumers today. But really, we need to start to look at whole system costs that we very much highlighted in the recosting energy um, document.
0: Okay. Um, j- just to let people know, this is a live show, so you can call in with um, questions, but we'll just hold off uh, a little bit, so we can kind of progress the conversation a little bit. We have got someone holding up um, their hand up already, um, so so we'll be taking calls a bit later. Um, you, you mentioned changing the merit order. Um, how what, what's wrong with the merit order? You know, uh, just describe at the moment. My understanding of the merit order is that um, you have you know, the cheapest generator in the power market dispatches at any given moment, um, followed by the, the the next cheapest and the next cheapest until. The, the the marginal dispatcher is is the one that, reach, that meets the marginal until demand is satisfied. So the marginal generator that kind of sets the price. So you're referring to marginal pricing here, um, and, and and if so, like how how would changing the merit order help that?
1: Well, it, it's it's not so much the merit order in t- in terms of the wholesale market, but if you look at the regulations. Um, let's say for networks, et cetera. Um, there aren't the incentives for them to look at flexibility first. I mean, there are some, but it's not as deep and as prescriptive as I, I would personally like it to be. Um, flexibility doesn't appear on your, the merit order you've just described from the wholesale market. It's all about generation. So we've got to give, um, demand side actions equality throughout the markets. Also, in the as you rightly say, the capacity market um, and through regulation throughout. This is how we're going to optimise the system and in many ways create the competition between optimised demand and optimised supply. Rather than the system today, which is really a bit of a hosepipe that um, sort of sprays down towards consumers in a, in a very linear way.
0: Yeah, Okay. Well, that actually leads on to my my next question for you, because um, when we've spoken previously, you've described to me the uh, the subscription model for energy retail, where consumers pay a fixed fee for system access, a bit like broadband, and the energy supplier is then incentivized to both help its customers reduce their consumption and apply pressure upstream to reduce the cost of supply, which would improve their profit margins as the intermediary. Um, And and that sounds great, but but I kind of look at the state of the market and I wonder, is there any chance of any utility implementing this kind of innovative business model, having just been through an extraordinary process of elimination of uh, innovative new suppliers from the market and with wholesale prices being where they are and the price cap putting a limit on them passing through costs? You know, how, how far are we from a position where we could even... Imagine that sort of thing being offered to, to, to energy consumers in the UK today.
1: Well, I mean, you're absolutely right, Seb. Um, suppliers have gone through a, a very, very difficult time. and um, But to be frank, what is interesting is that there are people who are offering services but who do not want to become suppliers because of the uh, licence agreements. And there are certain elements of that, obligations, but also um, the way it's structured and... Um, some, some of the uh, requirements of the license actually prohibit them from doing it. So you've got a couple of companies, one social um, energy, another zero homes. These are companies who are offering both services and cost reduction as their proposition. The problem that we have at the heart of the supply market is that actually people only make money if they sell lots of energy. So if you change those incentives, and and maybe you think about your your mobile phone um, market, right? So actually, my mobile phone provider is incentivized for me to use the least amount of data possible because I've got a service agreement with them. And that starts to drive them to optimize the system and to reduce costs right way right through the system. They will then offer me, hopefully, with competition um, a lower price as they've been able to lower the supply chain price but i I totally appreciate today we're not in a great place when it comes to the supply market but personally i'd like to see a lot more different companies coming into the market whether that be um ev leasing companies who could sell me um an, an ev car with 300 miles embedded in it Um, I would like to see home services companies that would be able to, in many ways, take the energy component away from me and allow things like heat as a service to be delivered. This would certainly ensure optimisation of the system and also much greater um, um, sort of visibility for me as a consumer of what I'm, I'm shelling out.
0: What do you mean by take the energy component away from me?
1: So if I leased a car which had 300 miles embedded in it every week, in some ways I wouldn't be engaging with the energy component of it. It would be part of the system. Um, Just think how we're communicating today. We're communicating through data packages. I, I mean, I know that I buy an iCloud subscription, right? But actually i'm not really engaging with with data i'm not you know watching the monitor or watching the meter uh roll and so what i'm doing is i'm getting an outcome not a um in in some ways not an input i'm not paying for an input i'm paying for a service and for an outcome
0: yeah that that is a different way of thinking about energy totally because right now everybody's glued to their smart meter in the uk looking at the damn thing clocking up and up and up because the price is going up every six months or perhaps more frequently depending on what the regulator decides to do um it, it seems like um a total rewiring of of this um this kind of host pipe system that that you've described um is there much kind of appetite within uh, within government perhaps or within those people who influence government that, that this needs to happen and uh, is it falling on, uh, is it pushing on open door or is it falling on deaf ears? Can you talk around the, the appetite for this at the moment here?
1: Well, I, I tell you that the the organisation that's been doing a lot of work in, in this area, particularly heat as a service, is uh, the Energy Systems Catapult um, through their living lab. They've actually been testing these these models and they are very popular with consumers. Um, there is a real understanding that they can then take control, because at this moment, with both lot of volatility but also lack of understanding. I mean, we've had an energy system to date which has actually expected me to become a heating engineer. Well, I don't want to spend my time being a heating engineer. I want somebody <laughs> else to, to to take on those responsibilities. And so the business models that, that, that are working in the innovation space are service business models. Um, there's a lot now of data and consumer feedback because the Living Lab has lots of customers, real people experiencing these things, lots of positive feedback. And that has been fed into government. And I think there is a realization that coming out of this retail reform, we cannot land back in the same place with just an adjusted price cap or with, you know, a couple of, of better terms and conditions, I think customers, and having previously been a politician, um, I think voters will want to experience something different and see that there's been a fundamental change. I mean, w- one of the things that I learned um, when I represented um, East Kent, which included Margate and Ramsgate, the average wage there was £16,500 a year. And the reason why the energy bill was the most toxic bill, I mean, super toxic, was because it was probably the only bill that families who were on very tight budgets, who were super smart consumers, had no control over and didn't know what was in that envelope or in that email before they opened it. And that volatility... Particularly when we've got fixed costs—I mean, fixed costs up to a point—but um, sort of we're contracting through contracts for difference for fixed cost renewables. We really need to start to take as much volatility out of the system as possible.
0: Yeah. Um, well, that that issue about um, yeah affordability and uh, kind of medium low incomes—that's that's really relevant today. But it, but also it it, it kind of. It, it touches on a point that you, the the, the, the market, uh, the the report raises, which is this idea of for the few and not the many, um, and that um, that decarbonisation has at times been a kind of regressive wealth transfer from the kind of lower income households to. To, 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 those that can actually afford to shoulder the burden. And um, the, the classic example is the initial wave of feeding tariffs for rooftop solar, which were just egregiously generous and they were levied across the system, um, regardless of their ability to pay. And I worry that we're seeing the same thing with, um, some of the, the the kind of incentives for um, for e v charging, which are smart charging at, at, at times of the day when yes. electricity is very very low, and so if you can afford afford forty thousand pounds or fifty thousand pounds for for a lovely new shiny e v then you get free fuel. but if you 're stuck with your old banger, you know with your old larder or whatever filling up at the petrol station you 're getting absolutely fleeced. So how do we avoid any sort of complex system change from resulting in these regressive wealth transfers?
1: Well, I, I would question one point, and, and in, in the recasting energy um, project, we actually did some metrics, which from, from what I understand are the first that have ever been done in the world. And that is not on commodity costs, but on whole system costs, which is where what we really must start to move to as a metric of understanding the whole system cost. But we compared demand and supply together in one metric so you competed a nuclear power station with an ev car and we calculated on whole system costs every ev that's on the system that is plugged in and active on the system actually reduces the whole system costs for everyone right so there is actually a societal benefit. Now, I totally pick up your point, Seb, and, and I totally agree with it, that um, we can't have, for example, um, houses on one side of the street which have got so, two EVs, you know, heat pumps, etc., and who are benefiting from a, you know, marginal cost energy um, and all of that being reinforced by network reinforcements so lots more cost. And everybody else on the other side of the street who have got none of those assets to be able to, in many ways, arbitrage the system. So how I think that one can start looking at this, and it's something that happens in um, Spain and in Italy, is to actually decouple the essential service. So the essential service is what actually creates a lot of onerous responsibilities on the um the retailer license and the essential service is a low-powered where you might find it difficult to put your um kettle and your hair dryer on at the same time but that actually in many ways and that then becomes the price cap component And then on top of that, you have your premium services like your top up on your data or whatever, which is if you do have your two EV cars, that will be adding some system costs. And that can be reflected in a premium charge rather than the essential service. But it still doesn't take away from the fact that EV is participating on the system will actually reduce whole system costs for everybody.
0: Interesting. Okay, um, let's um, let's open it up. Uh, there's uh, TJ has been waiting for a while to ask a question. I'm just going to bring TJ in. Uh, be sure to unmute yourself if you're there, TJ. You're up.
2: Well, thanks to you both. Um, I probably agree to say the energy markets are broken. It seems like to me, it, the energy market tries to operate like a private enterprise. Um, But it has some artificial market mechanics going on, too. I guess my question as a consumer, why doesn't the consumer have a choice to purchase their electricity using different generation methods?
1: Well, I mean, I think we should have choices. Um, You should also have choices on how you purchase your energy. Do you want a vanilla as we do today or do you want it embedded in a service um, or is it a whole home services contract that that covers everything that you need from your broadband inclusive is it embedded in assets so i absolutely think firstly we need to have a lot more consumer choice and we need to break open this very vanilla one-size-fits-all retail market then what you want to buy in terms of obviously i suspect you're referring to renewables um, versus fossil fuels, I mean there are tariffs out there that are purported to be one hundred percent renewables it 's actually probably in the whole market impossible for uh, for that to be achieved um, but you do need to consider those companies that actually are really, really dedicated. I would say good energy is probably at the forefront of that. But one of the other things, TJ, that you sort of maybe raise, and that is maybe I'd like to buy it from my neighbour who's got the um, the PV. Maybe um, I would like to buy it from a sort of community um, energy system that I, I will then help manage in terms of, of demand and supply and balancing. So I think that what we need is a lot more diversity of, of offerings Um, both on the supply and the demand side. And we need to, in in many ways, um, both liberate it um, in terms of choice, but also make sure that the consumer protection is in place. Um, You're also right, TJ, that it is sort of half totally an open market. And on the other hand, it's got all sorts of other distortions, such as capacity markets and um, other markets that are actually deterministic rather than um, free-flowing. Does that answer your question or do you want to come back? In
2: some ways, yeah. I guess I want to be more specific about that. So as a, as a customer, right, as, as technology advances and we get a larger share portfolio being uh, different providers, different generation methods, we should see a reduction in price, but that's not happening. We see a rise in energy costs despite the advances Absolutely. of technology and more options. And so that's the artificial market mechanic I was speaking about. So as a consumer we should have a choice then if we're, if we indeed are operating in a private market, uh, we should have a choice as to which okay. method we prefer. And so with cheaper fossil fuel generation, whether that's coal or natural gas, at a cheaper cost to the customer, you should be able to select that option, maybe versus paying more for a uh, s- solar or, or, a, or a wind or a, um, a different form of renewables, right? That obviously is, is, is much more expensive to produce per kilowatt hour. So as consumers, The market should allow those consumers to make that choice and the market should follow that consumer driven model i would i would think
1: could could i pick up on one thing you said and that is that even before the ukraine war um uh renewables were were really dropping in price and cheaper than um than fossil fuels so i think that actually that is if i was looking for the cheaper option to be frank what i would be wanting is a renewable option rather than a fossil fuel option. Um, I, I mean, I'm totally pro lots of choice, um, but fundamentally, firstly, we do need to decarbonize our energy system. Secondly, I think that in a decarbonised, a, in a fully decarbonized energy system, um, we will be able to benefit from low marginal costs of the commodity. Now, the system costs will go up. So that's where this whole system costing really has to be um, accommodated for. Um, and but I, I'm, I'm absolutely not a, not against lots of choice. Um, but, however, I would say that if I was looking for the cheaper option, I wouldn't be looking for the fossil fuel option.
2: Well, it's my understanding, too, the price per kilowatt figure for renewables. They're not rolling in and they're not um, accounting for the fact of all the billions of dollars in public taxpayer investment as well. So what, we're about 15 or 20 years into the renewable sector, but we kind of forget about all the investment the taxpayers have made in order to get them there.
1: Okay. Um, I would love to also then talk about the amount of tax breaks that the oil and gas sector has had as well. I mean, I I think, you know, we, we can argue those points, um indefinitely probably but i would say that uh the oil and gas sectors has had its quota of um of good lift up from from government
2: yeah fair enough it's a really great point laura too and and i recognize that i guess my big question is as a consumer right we're seeing and and commodities across the board uh, and a lot of this is driven by speculation and trading uh, that's not yep. attached to supply and demand, which is another issue itself. But yes. my big question is, is it's really in everyone's best interest for the cost of energy to be reduced, and it's going the opposite direction. And as we see technologies, right, more expensive technologies continuing to drive the price in the opposite direction of traditional market mechanics, um, how is that beneficial to the consumer, to the average individual, and, and to the individual that can probably least afford a rise?
1: Well, I, th- I think there's Two things here. Number one is we have these um, green levies that are put onto um, all energy bills, right? Well, electricity bills. And actually, what I would do is I would take those off and put them into general taxation because um, they are historical. Um, they're, they've, you know, quite significant on the bill. And actually, I do believe in investment in technologies to bring them to uh, market parity, which, actually, which renewables most certainly are now. Um, I think that if you start to look at cheapest options, um, you will find that, um, that solar and onshore wind are significantly less expensive than oil and gas. And so if I could make those choices, I mean, I would look to decouple um, fossil fuels from renewables and actually fossil fuels and renewables have in many ways a much more established fixed price and if you think we have sort of nationalized the price of renewables through contracts for difference so i have total visibility of that price what is unfortunate is of course the fossil fuel price is what's making what's determining the overall price for me and that is where the volatility is. And what I also say, TJ, is certainly having worked and, and lived in an area where average wages were really, really low, um, it's actually more to do with volatility than it is actual price. If people had more fixed price um energy, they would actually have a reference point from which they could then invest in energy efficiency. But with volatility, it's impossible to find the price point by which your energy efficiency becomes um, calculable and therefore valuable.
2: And so as our needs continue to, to increase, right, um, you know, the, the average per person consumption of, of kilowatt hours is, is up. So we're consuming more energy than ever. I think as the developed, uh, underdeveloped world will continue to get developed, we'll see a rise in that so in, any removal from the production system will drive higher prices, will it not? What do you mean the production system? So in the production system, if we're going to uh, prioritize renewables, right, and, and shut down plants, natural gas plants, fossil plants, whatever, that reduction will cause a, a, a reduction in supply, right, and will thus drive prices. So I, I guess what I'm saying is, is if we're moving more towards the fixed cost, more technology more renewable model why is the price per kilowatt increasing it should be going the opposite direction
1: it 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 should because but the problem is is the price the price is fixed by the fossil fuels not by the renewables
0: um yeah tj um can i just ask uh, where where are you calling in from are you in the uk or stateside
2: united states
0: okay um because uh certainly in the, in the uk it's probably worth Talking a bit about the contract for difference system, which we have for new build wind farms now, and there's a strike price. And when the wholesale power price rises above the strike price, then the renewable generator actually pays back to the supplier the difference, so hence the name, the contract for difference. Um, the, the strike price originally was set much higher than the kind of trailing average wholesale power price. And it was a top up. So it was an incentive um, to invest because um, that gave the investor like uh, visibility of uh, you know and the a guarantee that they get above the wholesale power price. But as wholesale power prices have gone up because of the rising cost of fossil fuels, and as the, uh, the the kind of cost base of renewables has come down, then we've seen an, a massive inversion whereby the strike price is an absolute bargain. So um, we're seeing wind farms in the UK now paying back millions and millions of pounds every week to the suppliers. Um, which, in theory, should be passed through to consumers, but because so many suppliers are going bust or their their margins are running impossibly thin, then those rebates are essentially keeping the supply sector solvent and stopping further insolvencies from happening. Um, what we are burdened with is um, this kind of legacy. Um, false, uh, 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 subsidy system called the renewables obligation which was just a top-up on the wholesale power price so the first few waves of wind farms are still getting these renewable obligation certificates that are worth um, you know many millions of pounds um, and they don't respond to wholesale price signals so yeah we're with the part of the levy that is on that is driving up um, the the price that consumers pay is um, uh, it, it is a function of old subsidy regimes that don't respond to the wholesale power price. But I think that smarter regulation and greater use of the CFD, as, as well as what Laura mentioned, putting some of those legacy costs, like the renewables obligation, onto taxation, um, then I think you would see some of those system cost burdens being taken away from the poorest households and, uh, and kind of being put onto a more progressive charging regime, such as, such as taxation.
2: Such a great point, Seb. Thank you so much. And thanks to you both. I mean, really fascinating conversation.
0: No worries. Th- thanks for your call, TJ. Um, thanks, TJ. Uh, uh, and Laura, on, on that point about decoupling, um, <laughs> we, we've talked about this where the, you know, the, the, the marginal gas-fired generator sets the price for all the generators in the market, even those with no fuel costs like wind and solar um, and very low costs like, like nuclear power. Um, uh is are you are you seeing uh, much much appetite for a review of how how that system works um because um it's it's very pertinent that that you, that you know you have a system designed to set prices um based on a marginal molecule which is you know the most expensive molecule there is it's the natural gas molecule which which fuels the gas fired generators and that this this then kind of Sends this kind of enormous invisible subsidy to generators that that are able to access um, and uh, and uh, redeem the wholesale power price. Um, this is like the pay-as-clear model, where um, yeah. when the market clears at a certain price, everybody gets paid that price. Um, I mean, I, I'm not I'm not particularly close to government circles, but like, I imagine you, you are a little bit more than me. So, like, you know, is like something al- alternative, like pay-as-bid. So, if you get if you, if, a, if a generator gets paid. What they bid into the wholesale power market, then they, well, that's what they get paid, rather than the gas-fired generator price. Is there any kind of alternative model being I mean, explored at the moment?
1: I think that I think there are some some different models. I mean, there are some people who are very very committed to the wholesale market as it is today, and feel that um, those peak prices, the clearing price, actually incentivise everybody to, um, in some ways, reduce their consumption, but. I'm not totally convinced. I'm more interested in what's been developed by um, the Oxford Energy Institute, which I think is interesting, which has got um, two different markets. One is energy as generated. So that's energy that comes in at three o'clock in the morning, which can be captured by storage, storage options, can be captured by um, EV cars, can be captured um, by hydrogen electrolysis. Um, and so that becomes a very cheap energy. And then the premium energy is the energy as you need it on demand. So whenever you want it. And my analogy for this is the difference between being a milk farmer, i.e. just producing milk, Um, and being a cheesemaker, i.e. adding value to that milk to create a premium product. And so, in many ways, the fossil fuel dimension would fit into the premium product, and the energy as generated would be um, that lower price um, energy that hadn't been, in many ways, in my food analogy,
0: processed. And milk goes off more quickly than cheese, exactly so you have to there's a parallel there isn't there okay
1: so you 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 have to drink it you know in a reasonable time but you need refrigeration which of course is an analogy to storage
0: right but the cheese is like a commodity that can be stored it doesn't you know last a bit longer without refrigeration so so it's like you know kind of uh i don't know pumped uh, pumped air storage system or or just holding the fuel is as in like in hydrogen form or something like that
1: absolutely so it's what i would call processed energy
0: rather than
1: raw commodity i
0: I can see the marketing guys having a field day with this when the utilities finally start marketing you know your uh, milk milk electrons and cheese electrons (laughs) it's going to be great
1: (laughs) (laughs) why not a bit more creativity would be good for the market
0: yeah yeah it would um uh well let, let's let's hope that the, the market becomes more benign at some point because right? i go back to the point i made earlier which is that that we had a lot of innovation when markets were benign and uh the the, the kind of doors were, were thrown open and, and a lot of innovative suppliers came with with new ideas and new business models and we've seen so many of them exit the market Um yeah. i think there's a point to be made here about resiliency because that's that's been the missing ingredient, and that's the big regulatory um, missing piece, if you like, the regulatory failing, frankly, that we saw from Ofgem, the regulator here, that, um, that really kind of failed to ensure resiliency um, as it opened up the floodgates to to competition. So um, perhaps just before we close off, um, Laurie, speak a bit about resiliency in the system, how this kind of all-sing, all-dancing, um, milk-and-cheese-based system, which sounds brilliant... <laughs> um how how do we ensure that it's also resilient and doesn't go all well, stinky like off milk?
1: <laughs> oh my God, we're we really going there um so i uh, I mean one of the things that I mean government is looking at the retail reform, and one of the things they must achieve is um resilient, successful retail businesses, right and so we ended up in this really bad vortex around switching, that switching was. Um, the only way to make competition work. Actually, what we did was we didn't actually either expect or allow companies to invest in their customers. And in many ways, the switching sort of religion that went on was really a, a sort of, in some ways, the symptom of the problem that actually our retailers weren't offering very exciting products or services. And to be frank, they're very, very restricted to what they can offer. And so I would see that a liberalization of the retail market. um, Again, another analogy would be, you know, when we used to have in, in the data and digital world, we used to have mainframes where customers were expected to fit into the system design. And now everything is designed around my PC. Everything is designed around demand. And if we can, in many ways, re-engineer the system to start with the demand profile, you will create resilience in the demand space as well as in the generation space. But to be frank, what we do need is we need a lot more storage. And I come back to my refrigeration analogy. Um, Before refrigeration in the food sector, we lost 60% of our food and with refrigeration and it comes in lots of different components and you've got exactly the same in energy if you think frozen food is long-term storage hydrogen flash freezing is ev cars you know all of these components play a very important role and in some ways those system system investments are going to be as important as the electron investments
0: yeah, yeah, and uh, remuneration thereof as well. So, so getting to somewhere, you know, it, it makes sense to, to do these things for investors. Um, Laura, it sounds fabulously um, uh, ambitious and uh, um, perhaps almost fantastical, this idea of uh, the, the kind of the, the multipolar energy system. Um, but I guess it, there's only one way to start making it reality is to kind of start talking about it and visualizing it. So, um, so thank you for taking the time to do that today. It's been a real pleasure.
1: Thank you so much, Seb, and thank you to your listeners. It's been really great fun.
0: Yeah, um, so just to remind everybody, um, to if you're listening, sign up to uh, www.energyflux.news, where you can get uh, free updates on all the things I'm writing about, um, and you can take out a premium subscription as well. Um, That's the Energy Flux newsletter, and the podcast will return next week. Um, So stay tuned for another episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in and I'll see you again soon.